I'd like to um, explore tonight a couple of threads that have been in my mind recently, and those are steadiness and steadfastness, and what those um, what those can mean in our practice, for our practice, in our lives, and for our lives. When we live in dramatic times, which we have been in the past couple or three years, I think it naturally comes to us um, the sense that, the kind of an interior sense that we feel a little off balance perhaps sometimes. Um, certainly, certainly the way our culture is structured plays into that. Um, the media um, has a propensity for latching on to the dramatic. And we've had you know, quite a few dramatic events in the world lately, the geopolitical world, our own economic world, world of world health. Um, and of course, this isn't new that our culture tends to do this. I think it's part of our nature, too, as human beings, that we uh, we have a kind of liking for the dramatic. And perhaps that's because the dramatic is easier to say and talk about in a certain sense. And what we're doing coming together here tonight, spent the first 45 minutes together in silence, And so that's very interesting, isn't it? What is, what is that about? I, when I was reflecting on this um, as something to talk about this evening, as I said, it's been in my mind recently, but the, um, a quotation or a paraphrase really from Thoreau came to my mind from on Walden Pond, and he said, um, well, I'm, it's really not to my purpose to read the paper and find out that 52 people died in a train wreck. Of course, he was writing 150 years ago, or more than. Or that some financier has deceived many people and taken their life savings and ruined their lives. He said, all this is very true. But my purpose in being here is to understand what my soul is about and what, how that might accord with a larger picture, a larger reality. I think in a way that's what we all know, why we come here together to do this practice. We have a sense, and one could call it an intuitive sense perhaps, but, and it may be very hard to explain even to ourselves or to others, but we have a sense that 
there is something else. There is a kind of larger picture, to put it in very um, simple terms. And we, we each know that in, in our own way. And we're, we're exploring, we're inquiring into what that is and why that is. Why do I have this sense that there's something else going on other than the world of reading the paper and 9-11, Enron scandals, the Afghan war, the war in Iraq, SARS, our own personal joys and pleasures or disappointments and tragedies. We have a sense that there's something, there's something else. And we're looking into that through this way. We have a sense as um, Rumi in Coleman Barks' illimitable translation puts it, there's more to life than money, fame, and bites of roasted meat. And we're, uh, we're here kind of exploring what that more might be and how we might connect with that or know that, accord with that. Of course, the Buddha knew this too. He had a very deep sense that there was more than what appeared in the world that the Buddhists call the samsaric world. In other words, that world of conditions and events, the kind of media reality, the movie reality that just keeps rolling along. So the Buddha was very convinced of this and and brought a kind of a steadfastness to his inquiry and to his exploration that that I think we could we can look at and explore a bit tonight. He inquired through many different practices what this might be, what this inexplicable thing that he knew was there as part of himself as a human being. He he wasn't the Buddha yet, right? He was a person, Siddhartha, Gautama Siddhartha, who, who had this sense that we all have here, that there's something else going on. So he looked into it in a number of ways. And at a certain point, he keyed into um, that a kind of steadiness of purpose and a steadfastness would serve him well. And of course, mythically, this all happened in one night. He said he made this intention to sit down and until he could understand and express, at least to himself, what it was that he knew that was so mysterious and so compelling. And of course, as the myth goes, he, he found that out. He brought, his, um, he brought his steadiness, which 
which I think of as a returning to. He kept returning to being awake. That was his vow of steadfastness. I'm just going to sit here for as long as it takes. Maybe psychologically that's, um, that's all we need to do. Certainly in less um, grand and spiritual stories of people vowing to do something, that's sometimes just really bringing a kind of a steadfastness to whatever it is that our task is calling us to do is all it needs to take for the way to open up to us, to achieve what we want to achieve, to find out what we want to find out. In any arena of life, in our, you know, in our relations, in our work in the world, whatever it might be, So, the Buddha, when he found this out, um, it was very big and vast, his vision of what this was that's difficult to talk about, was so big and vast that he wasn't going to talk about it. He said, well, I understand it, and I'm satisfied, but it's, it's big, it's complex, and it's not easy to talk about. However, he was persuaded that it would be... Um, in accord with this understanding, to be generous. And so he found a way to communicate what his understanding was. And that's the kind of way that we're practicing now. That's the, in this place right here and right now, and this where we've come together to explore, inquire into this. Um, we're looking at those teachings and the Buddha found really a quite, a quite wonderful and simple way called the Four Noble Truths um, to describe what, he'd, what this understanding was. This understanding of the other side of samsara or the other, the kind of other reality. This is where we just try to use language the best we can in a subject that is really outside of language, but that we each know deeply as part of our being human exists. We have the sense that this contains it all, that it's not just this side of pain and pleasure and joy and sorrow, alternating conditions. We have a sense that there's something that there's something that, that holds it all, if you will, or that it all revolves around, maybe, is another way to put it. Um, so there are many different ways in, in, in the Buddhist teachings alone that, um, that this is expressed. Um, the, the, common, um, the common one that the Buddha talked about was nirvana or nibbana, that there is this place 
if it could be characterized as a place um, that that holds it all, where a place where we are free from reactivity to the conditions and circumstances that go on in the samsaric world. A place of, which is nirvana, uh, nibbana, nirvana is, is characterized in many different ways as a release, as an extinguishing of um, the fires of anxiety and the poisons, etc. Poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. But for me, the important thing about the threads of steadfast and steadiness are the ideas of returning to knowing this place that that we all do know in some sense. And in the steadiness of returning to it, uh, we come to know it better. We come to be able to, to connect with it, to, uh, to have a to have it support us, which in fact it truly does, but we, we come to know it. We come to know how it's supporting us through practices of meditation. Within the Buddhist world, um, there, there are many ways of this, of returning, coming to be, to do steadfast practice. This Saturday, Carl Bielfeld will be kind of exploring what some of those ways might look like. Um, Offhand, I can think that the foundational practice of this tradition, Vipassana Insight Meditation, is the four foundations of mindfulness. And there are many instructions in that discourse on, on meditation itself and how to meditate that Talk about returning, coming back to the breath, coming back to the body, coming back to the mind, and getting to know it by that returning more deeply um, every time. And then, of course, in the Tibetan practices, there are practices of returning to devotions, to the guru, to imaging, to images, to recitations to prostrations, coming back again and again, which strengthens and and at the same time opens us and our practice. And in the Zen world, there is, in Soto Zen, coming back to just sitting, coming back to sitting, knowing that the mind and body are here sitting, knowing the aspects of the mind and body completely whole and integrated, not separated and dualistic. And then in Rinzai Zen, coming back to the koan, coming back to the koan, until the koan, those puzzles for the mind, uh, those conundrums, um, mu, what is the sound? Does 
the dog have Buddha nature until the koan dissolves. And then we, in a way, one could say, know the center that the center that's within us that is also the larger center that holds it all. The Buddha said, um, this is all we need. We have all we need. If we come to inquire and we have a mind and body, this is all we need to know it all. He also, of course, didn't say that it was, famously didn't say that it was easy to do this. In fact, that was one of his reluctances um, to communicate this. And that's where this steadiness and steadfastness in our practice um, helps us through those times when it is difficult, both in our practice and in our life, to return to what actually is happening and unfolding, either when we're sitting here quietly or when things are in a big turmoil all around us. There's, um, there's a, a metaphor, it's a bit of a half metaphor, but it's one that keeps playing through with me about this steadiness. And that's, that's uh, it's rather like a gyroscope we we have that. I mean, a gyroscope is manufactured and we're not. Um, but, and a gyroscope is a round, is, is associated with a fixed point, but, and I'm trying to suggest something that's very, um, that's very expansive and inclusive. But there's a way that it always writes itself, a gyroscope does. That's, that's the way that it functions to keep us, when we look at it, when we're con- counting on it for direction and guidance and help, it writes us. And it feels like to me that we have that, we have that capability, we have that capacity within us to just get in touch with that place. And that's what meditation helps us to do. A very, a very specific way that this particular practice does that is through, is through mindfulness. And by mindfulness I mean in this simple definition um, that non-judgmental awareness in each moment. So keeping steadily mindful, keeping on the moment, we always return to that place of, of balance and where we're, where we're righted. And it's in that place where that kind of freedom can be very valuable to us in our life, where, where we don't have a fixed view or opinion. So when something new comes up, when some circumstance that we're unfamiliar with comes toward us, we can just meet that and, and see what that is and decide if any action is necessary, what, 
what action would be the wise one to take. And also as we practice mindfulness, of course I just gave one kind of simple definition, but mindfulness itself is really vast. It contains it contains it, it all, one could say. Um, it, it contains impermanence and it contains the fact that we are not uh, fixed selves. Um, as we practice, as we keep our steadfastness on, I mean the steadfastness of intention. As we keep bringing that back, we come to know mindfulness in a different way as well. It's not being a a witness or an observer, but we come to have that interior sense that we all have this feeling why we're here inquiring something else, something big is going on. Um, We come to know mindfulness in ourselves in a way. We come to know it as a friend, too, and as an ally, that kind of awareness. Um, So we come to know that it's not something outside us, that in fact we do have all we need. There's another... um, I think there's just one more thing that I wanted to bring up, which is a little story that also uh, came to me, played through my mind, which perhaps gives another slightly different angle on, on the steadiness and steadfastness. And that's about sailing. And if you've done any sailing, you probably have made the connection, or you might well have, that um, that involves a kind of a mindful awareness and a returning and certainly a steadfastness of keeping with the changing conditions, particularly of the wind and how that affects the sails um, and how that having that steadiness uh, and returning to what we know to our practice, keeping our intention to make time in our lives for our practice, to come together in practice, how that can help us in many situations. This one was from many years ago when I was um, just out of college and I didn't have a Buddhist practice at that time. I was doing spiritual inquiry, but I'd done a little sailing before, but never on my own. So I was living in Canada at the time and uh, went out with a friend who was an older father kind of a friend uh, to many of us at, of, of, at that time. And Paul had a little sunfish kind of vessel uh, one person, very simple sailing vessel with a little tiller and one little sail. And so he said, somehow it came up, and I said, oh, you have that. I, I've kind of always wanted to do that. And he said, well, I'll show you how. So um, so we went out one afternoon, beautiful, 
cold, brisky wind. I, I don't remember exactly, but I would guess now maybe four to five knots. Pretty, pretty strong for somebody like me who'd never done any sailing before, really. So with very little instruction, Paul uh, kind of spent 15 minutes showing the boat, pointing out what the parts were called, and, and he gave me a little nautical terminology, but he was very kind and didn't insist on me learning port and starboard. You know, he was willing to say left and right, and, but showed me how the, the sail, the little sail got rigged and what I should do with the tiller. And, and then he jumped in the boat and did a little close to shore, maybe 100 yards off. He did a little sailing you know, demo and said here because there's only one person could be in the boat. So he said, "Here's how it's. Here's how you do it." And now I'm, I'm. Ta- and he especially showed me how to pay attention to the wind because the wind at this time of the day is coming from this angle and it can really take you out. And how you get back because the whole thing is, you know, the wind will take you out, but how are you going to get back to the shore? So he said, "Here's tacking." So he gave me a like a 15 minute. Uh, demo on tacking. So he said, well, you think you're ready? And I said, well, okay, I'll try it. And I I noticed that I had those fluttery feelings in the stomach, which were part excitement, but also part um, fear. You know, I, well, can I really do this, get out there on my own? Then I got in and kind of fumbled around a little bit. And Paul and I were still close. I was still close to shore and he was guiding me through and we were doing some things. And after about 10 minutes, and I felt at ease enough to sort of take off and sail a little bit. And he goes, okay, um, take off, Carolyn. And so I did. And then I switched into a different state where uh, I really felt like I was kind of in tune with the wind and the sails. And even though it was new, I was getting the hang of it. And I got very exhilarated with the sensations of sailing. And it's very pleasant, you know, I mean, for some anyway, who... When the wind is just taking you, there's an effortlessness to it that makes it very, uh, that makes it very wonderful. I think, for me anyway, the effortlessness is very nice. And I kind of lost track of where I was. Basically, I was letting the wind take me. And at a certain point, I heard Paul call my name, and it sounded kind of far away. And I turned, <laughs> turned back, and. I was a lot further from the shore than I thought. I mean, Paul was over there like where the people in the back row are, or at the end of the room, maybe. I mean, I could see he's there and he's going, Carolyn, come back. And the wind was such that I couldn't hear him, but I could see what he was saying, come back. And I went, oh. And then this kind of a steadiness of returning to what I had learned and how to be with the moment arising of the wind, although I didn't put it in the terms of arising, but how to be with the shifting winds and the winds coming around. And so little by little returning, going out and then back, letting the wind fill the sails one way and then tacking so that it brought me in. And that's a gradual process. Uh, And in fact, it was a long beach uh, and I ended up very much further down than where we started. Uh, but that returning like that is is that kind of steadfastness. 
There are, of course, in Buddhism and in human life in general, very many ways to try to explain this this place that's so hard to describe and explain. Buddhism has everything from the most simple, in a way, to the most subtle and sophisticated philosophical discourses. Um, And poets and philosophers are people who generally dedicate their lives to trying to explain the inexplainable. And I'd I'd like to end with with reading a poem by Rilke, who, who touches on this, I think, this part of steadfastness that each of us has within ourselves and that we can always return to. This is from the Sonnets to Orpheus. It's um, sonnet number 29. Silent friend, Of many distances, feel how your breath enlarges all of space. Let your presence ring out like a bell into the night. What feeds upon your face grows mighty from the nourishment thus offered. Move through transformation out and in. What is the deepest loss you have suffered? If drinking is bitter, change yourself to wine. In this immeasurable darkness, be the power that rounds your senses in their magic ring. The sense of their mysterious encounter. And if the earthly no longer knows your name, whisper to the silent earth, I'm flowing. To the flashing water, say, I am. So I really much enjoy meeting with people and speaking because I like to hear what they have to say, too. Uh, If anyone does have anything to say. Um, I know many times, and for me, too, it's um, after sitting meditation, listening to a talk, I don't always feel like saying something. So it's completely if you do. And sometimes I'm saying things to myself, maybe, hopefully, whispering to the water. I am. But if anyone has any reflections or stories on steadfastness or anything that's come up for you. story about uh, rubbing two sticks together to make a fire and and Mm. how you have to keep rubbing the sticks and rubbing and rubbing and not stopping. And I had also thought of that as 
persistence or tenacity. And I'm wondering, is does steadfastness have a little different quality or is very similar? Yeah, I, I think there is there is a kind of an overlap there between insist, persistence and steadfastness. Thank you for that story. It's almost like a different facet of the of the diamond in a way, um, if you will. Um, it's persistence. I think of more as energy, and and we do have to have that too in order to. Uh, and also it shifts at different times. Um, um, I think of the steadfastness as more, as a more receptive than an outgoing energetic quality. But certainly they're, they're, um, they're complementary. And sometimes they'll both, at least it's been my experience, that they both come, are needed together and come together. Um, yeah, both in meditation and and circumstances in life. Thank you. <coughs> yes? Um, I'm always amazed how it seems like speakers can read my mind. Because <laughs> it's like, no matter when I come here and what's going on, there's something that gets said that relates. Um, tonight, <laughs> I, I do have a very um, big second practice, which is Tibetan. And we do have these mental images and the frustrations and all these mm-hmm. things. And so what went through my mind tonight while I was sitting here because I started going into some mental imagery and I started reflecting on that because this is a cosmic group. <laughs> so I stepped away from that and I realized every person in the room may have something completely different going on and then we're all in the room. As you said, we all came together doing the same thing, but yet... And so, for me, the idea of steadfastness with all these different practices came all down to the breath and the persistence of going into the wind and the breath, if that's the same. So I just really, it helped a lot what you said to me about the practices and how we all kind of come together. Thank you. It's, as you say... It, whatever our object of meditation is, of course, in, in this tradition, um, that it's, there is a lot of emphasis on the breath. And at different points in our practice and different times in our practice, um, that, that will be very important to us. Um, or the image of the wind or, you know, how, however, whatever is. Um, but it's, it's, it's to keep returning to that, as you say. And also that we do all have different ones. It's one of the the most, one of the really perplexing things to talk about how we all have diff- what what we what how what we all share and how we're all so different. Tr- truly, we're all truly actually unique, um, and. even identical twins. And cloning hasn't worked out so well so far, so we don't know about that yet. Thank you.
go to tonight's talk. Um, sort of giving me um, positive, sort of positive encouragement in a slightly different way because I sort of mm -hmm. took it in a slightly different way. I'm a mom and a wife, and though I would like to have a daily practice where you know I sit every day at the same time for the same amount of time in the same place, um, it's extremely variable. It's like water flowing, you know, sometimes goes here, sometimes it goes there. And sometimes it's very frustrating. But as you were talking about steadfastness, I realized that through all the variations over the last you know, four years, I continued with this practice morning or night and half an hour, 15 minutes, and some times missing weeks, but there is a sort of steadfastness that has been there. And so, that was really encouraging, not in a particular session as such that I was worried about, but sometimes it is very frustrating to not have a consistent practice as many teachers have. So I thank myself today. Lovely. Excellent. Excellent. It's um, or sadhu, as they say in certain Buddhist circles. <laughs> well said. Um, that's what why the what you point to is where the mindfulness it, itself carries on in a way and returns to itself in a way in a way at a certain point. Yes, it is very nice and very supportive and very wonderful to have, you know, that kind of steady, as you've explained, kind of practice. But the mindfulness itself is our ally. And you just gave a beautiful example of how that, of how that is so. I've also known and, and sat with um, one teacher in particular, particular Kamala Masters, uh, who's who's uh, a well-known Vipassana teacher. She teaches at IMS, uh, IMS back at Barry, and also she and her husband, Steve Armstrong, have a, a retreat center in Hawaii uh, on Maui. And that is Kamala's story, is that she came to this practice as, as a mother, and her whole practice has been since she was a young woman as a mother raising her four children. That's how... And she has very many wonderful, encouraging stories about just those moments of mindfulness that we can that we can carry with us um, in our daily lives. They also say in in this in the more um, traditional Asian teachers that I've heard do emphasize that every moment of mindfulness is a is a precious and wonderful thing. Uh, and even in even one moment of mindfulness, in the Dhammapada, it said, you know, that one moment of awakeness or one moment of mindfulness is is worth a thousand years of 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 not being awake. One mind moment, actually, not even a measurable moment, but those mind moments. Yes. This idea of steadfastness and steadiness is it's sort of a refuge uh, mm. in, in a way. Um, what 
a shift for me that's taken place in the last few years is dropping in at meditation centers and yoga centers wherever I happen to be traveling. And there used to be a time when I went away with my family where that's, it was sort of put on hold until I came back. Now I sort of combined it, you know, with, like we were in Disneyland with uh, my 16-year-old and her friend. Mm-hmm. And we were able to uh, do yoga in our uh, suite, our, uh, our hotel room. And then I was able to find the yoga center three blocks away in Santa Monica. And it was so, it's so enriching and to be able to have sort of a traveling sangha, if you will, you know, no matter where you are, you can just drop in and have that steadfastness of practice <coughs> and, and not have to wait till you get back home to, to resume. Um, that's sort of popped up for me as we're speaking. Thank you. Yeah, that's another another aspect of I think um, of seeing that the practices as your friend, returning to them and wanting to associate with them and be with them. Well, it's nine o'clock. So I thank you all very much for your attention and your steadfastness in practice. Thank you.